When I was five years old, my family moved to Japan. My dad had a job opportunity over there. And while I was there, I started running around with kids that were from Japan and people that were Americans like myself. And a lot of them were riding bikes because biking is a big craze in Japan. So I started getting into biking and then I wanted to move into racing. And I really, really liked the competition and I liked working on bikes and, and having them. The sports are an integral part of my life because I like to have things that keep me physically fit, just like I do a lot of different things to keep my mind mentally fit. I've had three sports that I've enjoyed for the past 20 to 50 years, and each one requires different training what we do as a group, I have a group of guys that I do mostly sports with, is all during the summer, we're swimming, we're biking, we're running, we're doing different things like that, stand up paddle boarding, and then as the winter draws on and we start snowboarding, or we'll go to the gym and do different things like that, and I do a lot of weight training for my arms strictly for paddling, either stand up paddle boarding, or for surfing. When I'm at the beach and I'm surfing, I love the beach, I love the water, I love to paddle out. I've had a chance to go out into, uh, into the Atlantic Ocean, probably three or four miles out, and I've had sharks come up and bump my stand-up paddleboard trying to figure out what it is. Is it something they can eat or whatever like that? And it's just fascinating. I'll do a lot of snorkeling and see all kinds of fish and things like that. I really like seeing that. Then biking, one of the things I love about biking is we ride. You can smell the scent of different flowers as you're riding through and bushes and lilacs and things like that. I love also feeling the different temperature change just as you're climbing hills and mountains and then coming down in the valleys. It's just fascinating to me. And then when we're snowboarding in the winter, and I have a chance to, I've snowboarded so many places from Japan to Vermont and from Canada to New Mexico and so much in between. It's just fascinating, the mountains. I mean, I was just at Pikes Peak uh, last week, and I'm up on top of Pikes Peak, 14,000 feet up, and I'm just thinking, wow, how closer to God we are being up on top of this mountain. And I just really get thrilled with the beauty and awe of nature with God, with these sports that I do. You know, Art and I have been friends for many, many years now, and I'm always amazed that a 68-year-old guy now who's about to retire has more energy than most 20-year-olds that I know. When uh, I turned 40, he tried to teach me... Um, uh, snowboarding, and he's a phenomenal snowboarder, and I'm four years into snowboarding, and I'm still barely below average, and he's phenomenal at it. But what you heard in Art's story is a competitor. All right, here's a guy who likes to win, likes to challenge himself mentally, likes to challenge himself physically, uh, likes to challenge himself at work. And many of us, as we looked at our life and our career, we've said, I'm really good at going out, finding, hunting, winning, challenging. Go do it again. Repeat. And part of building our career was exactly about that. How do we build? How do we hunt? How do we create? In the middle of that, we, begin to, we get addicted to what's next. 
And what I love about what Art shared is how he was in the middle of his competitive spirit able to also notice the smells, the temperatures, to have the moments of awe on the top of a mountain. And isn't it true that many times we get so competitive and it's such an important part of, of our development that we lose the ability to sit, to notice, to be quiet, to slow down. We spent 30 years building a career. We didn't have time to, to answer the God question or, or get into a Bible study because, quite frankly, we've just been too busy getting stuff accomplished. We've got hobbies we had to put on the shelf because we were too busy accomplishing to, to enjoy that. And because of that, we don't have the kind of friendships we want. We feel like a success at work, but not always at home. We've got second or third houses, but we don't have time to use our second and third houses. And I asked Art how he was able to keep that competitive spirit, but also make this transition from warrior into also lover and connected to his own soul. He said, Chad... One of the things I'm looking at the next 10 years of my life as I retire at 68 is I want to even have more success in my next decade than my previous. And some of the things he has done to give back while he's been a competitor has just been amazing to me as his friend over the years. And he says he wants to do a lot more of those things. He's mentioned to me over the years uh, ways in which he's uh, encouraging other people. But you'll see him going down to the prison once a month to invest in and to mentor and to disciple. He had a young man a couple of years ago when we were snowboarding together who couldn't keep up with him when he, and this guy was in his 25, 30s uh, and working with him out of prison and this guy couldn't keep up with Art swimming across the, the Ohio River. He's like, come on now, I'm a 60-year-old, you got to keep up with me. Goes down once a month to work at the prison. He talked about his continued work with City Gospel Ministry and... Uh, Mentoring, he mentors drug addicts and feels like God uses him and he gets to feel more than just more stuff for him but really giving back in that way. Over the next 10 years, he wants to, he and his wife to get an RV and to travel the country but to also make strategic stops along the way to do missional work and to do a lot more work with our Belize team over the next 10 years. I was really struck by that because in, in the book Fathered by God, as he looks at the different stages of development, one of the fights that we're going to talk about today, we've gone through fighting for a father, what it means to be a son, fighting for adventure and work in your life, fighting for character and cause last week, and today we're going to talk about a real fight. In general, it's a fight, but it's a real fight in our culture. How do we fight to connect with awe, with quiet, with our own souls? How do we fight to, to be a giver, not just a consumer of life? And in a culture that's all about the opposite, busyness for its own sake, no margin, no chance to reflect, to fill up your resources, you have something to give to the people you love, it's going to be a real battle to accomplish that in our culture today. I was struck as I looked back over the last decade of my life, I felt like in general I'd done a pretty good job in my life. I love to compete, I love to work, I love to win, but I also love to connect with my own soul. And I realized the last nine years I have lost connection with my own soul. Just a constantly being onness of autism. That even in my own home we're not resting as I'm watching six different cameras to see what might be going on with Quinn at every second of every day. The quieting and fighting for awe and noticing and replenishing has been a luxury I have given up. And I've become addicted to what's next. Addicted to, to the next battle. Addicted to what's happening. And I've had to go back and revisit this battle of looking at in my current circumstances. How can I be a warrior that likes to win? And a lover who knows how to love God, 
love others, and even how to learn how to love and connect with myself. And so today I want to really dig into that a little bit more as we look at David's life. Because David is going to continue the journey. And David is amazing in that he, he sings songs that become top ten of his day. The American Idol of his day, people are singing his songs. He is a household name as a champion, as a warrior, not just with Goliath, but he's winning battles for the entire kingdom now. He's royalty. He's married the, the king's daughter. But the king has sort of gone crazy on him. Decided that, that David is the root of all his problems. So King Saul has been hunting him through the caves for years. This guy is busy. This guy is hunted. This guy is under stress. And yet in the middle of all of that, this warrior developed his inner lover. Where warriors know how to battle, a warrior also develops the lover who knows how to belong. Even in the middle of all the battles and all the advancement he's done, David has developed deep and meaningful friendships. I mean, it's unbelievable how deep and meaningful these friendships are. He also has his ability to connect with himself and know how he's doing and what he's thinking about and why he's doing what he's doing. He also has his ability to connect with God. Even in circumstances, I feel like God has abandoned him. He's constantly reaching out and wrestling with God to, to deepen his own soul in the midst of it. He didn't want to be a warrior just addicted to battle. He also wanted to be a lover who knew how to belong. I already saw in 2016, but Ronda Rossi lost the UFC championship, and she was bragging that nobody was going to beat the championship. She got so addicted to winning, in fact, that she did something that was unheard of in the time. She tried to cram in three championships within nine months. If you saw the battle, she got interviewed on Ellen after her humiliating defeat. And as she was discussing with Ellen, she said, I, I, I got that first hit, knocked my teeth loose. And as I was trying to not let my opponent know I was hurt, I realized I'm in trouble. And by the end of the match, she was defeated. And she told Ellen, she said, I went into the medical room. I slid down in the corner and cried. And if you ever heard Ronda Rousey, she's not a crier. She said, and here's what she said. She said, who am I anymore if not this? What does my life have any meaning if I'm not the champion? What am I going to do if I've not known for this? She got really teary in this very emotional interview and said, I actually in that moment thought I was going to commit suicide. Because my life had been all about being the champion, the winner, that no one's ever done this before. Do you see what she's saying? She became the battle. The essence of who she is got transferred from who she was to what she had done. And that's how you destroy a warrior, by the way. You know how you destroy a warrior? You bury them in the battle. Your life becomes all about the battle and there's no you left. You get smothered in it. And then at some point, somebody will be better than you. At some point, you'll retire. At some point, you're going to have to wrestle with you are more than just what you win and what you do and who you battle. As I've been trying to wrestle with this, last year, I had sort of a classic example of me trying to take time to restore my own soul. And here's sort of classic of me trying to relearn something I used to be good at, and I'm not there yet. 
My wife and I are going four-wheeling. We're in Colorado. I'm like, what a beautiful place to restore your soul is Colorado. So while we're in Colorado, uh, we're taking some four-wheelers up. And, and we're, I love the need for speed. I mean, we're going fast and we're whipping in and out and going up these trails. It's just gorgeous. And they said, hey, hey, when you're going up the trails, make sure you get to this peak and you're going to just uh, take in the beauty. And so it's so great. Turn this corner, whip around this, get up to the top. And oh my goodness, gorgeous view. And I'm just looking at the mountains. And I'm hearing the, the crickets. I can see a deer. And I just took it in. For about 10 minutes. And then I'm like, what's next? Okay, is there anything else to see? Uh, is there any other views? Oh, uh, okay, check, check. And again, even my recreation has become about what's next. Not Basking and noticing and admiring and replenishing. Let me show you how David did this. David, in the middle of all his battling, he has formed deep, meaningful friendships. And you talk about a scheduling nightmare. Hey, I'm going to be in the uh, cave on the left on Tuesday and we'll be somewhere in the wilderness on Friday night. And so David has formed these incredible warrior-esque families, men, women, children, but specifically band of brothers he has formed together that have battled with him, that they have talked about the challenges they have, the difficulties they had. Even in the most difficult of warrior circumstances, he has prioritized and battled for deep, meaningful friendship. So much so that while hiding in a cave one day, he's just worn out. My father-in-law, what a drag he is trying to kill me again. I could really use a drink, he says. And you know what would really be refreshing? I would love, when I was a kid, I grew up in Bethlehem and we had this spring. And there was something about water from this spring that was so sweet. It was the taste of it. It was the temperature of it. It's the memories it brings. I would love to get a drink from that spring in Bethlehem. But we are here. The enemy is here. And Bethlehem is here. There's no way we're going to get to Bethlehem anytime soon. He's got a band of mercenary warriors that love this man as their leader so deeply. They so want to please him. They've seen him fight for them, sacrifice for them, believe in them. They're like, you know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to get that man a drink. And they battle their way through the enemy lines to Bethlehem to get a cup from the spring. They battle their way back and they give it to him. He gets the drink that he has been thirsting after, dreaming after, reminiscing about. And he is so overwhelmed by the friendship, so overwhelmed by the sacrifice, he doesn't even drink it. Therefore, he would not drink it. Instead, he pours it out as a drink offering. says, guys, the way you've expressed your love to me, the importance of our friendship, that you would do this for me, guys, this just confirms what brings us together. He battled as a warrior in the worst of circumstances to build deep, meaningful friendships. Well, those same friends are constantly trying to talk him into killing off his father-in-law. For good reason. This guy's been hunting him for years. For no just cause. Well, one night they have an opportunity to kill off um, his father-in-law again. It's a second chance. 
And here again you see David in the middle of all his battles and all his winnings, constantly battling to stay connected to his spiritual life. Notice how many times he mentions the word Lord here in this passage. God is in charge. God is helping. I'm trying to figure out what God would want me to do. He is trying in the middle of building his kingdom, building his career, building, surviving to keep his spiritual life, his connection with God integrated into what he does. So much so that they're like, there's your father, let's kill him. No, we're not going to do that. God would want me to touch the Lord's anointed. Well, you've been anointed king too. Yeah, yeah, but it's not my time yet. I'm going to trust God's timing. That doesn't sound like a warrior, does it? Warriors don't wait for God's timing. You'll get it done. And these other warriors are like, why aren't we getting it done? No, we're going to trust the Lord's timing and not kill off somebody, even who's trying to kill off me in self-defense. Instead, that night, a deep sleep falls upon King Saul, his father-in-law, and his men. David and his men sneak into camp. They get up to the king who's sleeping there and they sneak out his spear and his water jug. They then climb back up a cliff. I got a chance to see this cliff because I was like, how could they talk to Saul and Saul not get them? I got to visit this place in Israel. It's amazing. You could talk to somebody down there, but it takes an hour to actually hike back up and the walls are so tall you can't climb them. So David comes back up to this cliff and looks down and says, hey, Saul, wake up. What's going on? Look, I could have killed you last night. I got your spear and I got your jug. Will you stop trying to kill me? I recognize your authority. I'm not trying to subvert you. I'm not trying to take your job. I am trying to serve the role God has for me at this season. And and to get where I need to go in his timing. And look how many times. Lord, here's the king's spear. May the Lord repay every man. God's the one that puts people in place. I'm not out to get you. God will restore me when it's time. I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And there's this way in which he has integrated his belief in God into everyday decision-making that even strikes his, his mercenary friends. Third thing is that David had this incredible ability to keep track of how he was doing inside. We have found scrolls of journal entries from David all over Israel that have been put together in what are called the Psalms. These are actual handwritten notes where David is sort of working through his fears, his challenges, the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. What would God want him to do? Is this me talking or God talking? Is this, is this what I want to happen or what I should really do? And if you look, these are just a few of his Psalms. Every time some major event happens in his life, you see him journaling through it. Psalms 3, David flees from and battles Absalom. His son stabbed him in the back, stole his kingdom from him, and he sits down with a broken heart and says, oh God, help me know how to deal with a rebellious son. And you see him. You see him doing two things. He knows what he's doing, but he also journals to figure out why he's doing it. How am I doing it? Another psalm, Psalm 7, Saul's persecuting him and he writes about the sense of injustice, the the inner challenge he has. Why am I doing this? Why am I not fighting back? What would God want me to do? Dedication of the temple. He's got journal entries of the joy and the thanksgiving and a thanksgiving journal. And he's connecting to his inner lover, lover of God, lover of self, lover of other people. David's in hiding, Psalm 54. He gets confronted about Bathsheba, a terrible time in an affair, and he writes a journal entry about wrestling with, how did I end up in an affair? And how did I get so far from God? And how could I have done this to somebody else's wife? And how could I have hidden it for so long? Philistine sees David. He writes another journal entry in Psalm 56. He flees from Saul into this cave in Psalm 57. 
But here is a man who was a mighty warrior and yet had time to battle for his own soul, battle for his connection to God, and battle for deep, deep, meaningful friendships in his life. I read a story years ago about a man who did exactly that. His name is Henry Nouwen. He's a Catholic mystic. He wrote a book I love called In the Name of Jesus, and it's about loving other people in really genuine, authentic ways. If you don't know Henry Nouwen, let me take you back. He uh, had taught at Yale. He taught at Harvard. And he taught at Notre Dame. He was such a sought-after speaker that he, he couldn't possibly clear his calendar. He had so many requests for books he was writing, for lectures he was giving. He was at the top and peak of his career. And he had battled his way to success on every arena that he was currently in. And then, shockingly, in 1986, he decided to pull away from it all and to go to Canada and work in La Arche with the mentally handicapped men. And he said what immediately struck him is this would be the kind of thing Jesus would do and the kind of thing he, he ought to do. Uh, and he saw this as a short-term project just to kind of do the work of Jesus. But he said he was immediately confronted with all of his insecurities. Because when you're face-to-face with a man who needs help putting on his clothes or changing a diaper or dealing with a chaotic moment, he said, I I faced the fact that I felt so inadequate. None of my titles mattered to them. None of my education mattered to them. The fact that I was a sought-after speaker at Yale and Harvard, Notre Dame, was totally useless. I had to face the fact I didn't know how to comfort another human being. Didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to encourage another human being, really. I didn't know how to come alongside and support in the long, tedious hours of special needs. He said, and it's here in this community. He ended up staying here for like 20 years, maybe 30 years. He said, I realized that I had built all the infrastructure of my life, all the, 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 the accolades of my life. But underneath, I had lost track if I'd ever discovered who I am. And his books are renowned for his ability to talk about the inner life the insecurities that we all cover up, the insecurities that we want to pretend don't exist, the fears that we want to pretend we don't have. This is just one of his many books that really helps someone wrestle with. If you are a warrior who's great at the battle, but you don't know how to belong to yourself or to God, I would just recommend Henry Nouwen as a man who has walked that journey and brought people through that journey. The second thing a warrior does, though, is warriors are really good at advancing. You know, if you want to get something done, you know who you call? A warrior. Warriors are the ones you call. He or she is going to get it done. She is the leader. He is the leader that you want to get from here to there in the shortest amount of time in the best possible way with excellence held high. Call a warrior. They know how to advance, right? They start and like, oh, here we go. It's one step after another. Their vision, they're focused. Go, 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 go. Now, often they miss the journey along the way because they're so laser focused on the deadline and on the finish line. And where warriors can advance, developing the lover side of you is also learning how to admire. It's not just about the destination, it's also about the journey along the way. Can you notice? Can you be present? Are you always at the kitchen table? You're not really at the kitchen table. Your mind's on what's next. For the family, the good things, next 
for your career, next place you might live, next place, house you might buy, next vacation you might take. Because you're so about advancing, which is your strength. That's why you've gotten where you are. You don't know how to admire. What's amazing about David is that David's talking to Saul, and you just get to see a glimpse of this, but I'll show you even more in a second. His ability to just notice from all those years of nourishing his soul. He says, Saul, why are you after me anyway? I'm just like this little flea. Saul, have you ever just studied a flea? No, no, I have not studied a flea. Who has time to study a flea? A shepherd. A shepherd who's out not only battling lions and bears, but... Those things can jump. Huh. David, Dad, you're like somebody who's, who's hunting, hunting a, a partridge in the mountains. Have you ever seen a partridge in the mountains, Saul? I haven't noticed. Too busy building a kingdom. Oh, you, you ought to see it sometime. To see a bird fly through the mountains. I mean, it's almost like a butterfly. They dart here and there. It's not only beautiful to watch, but it is there impossible to catch. And you're going after a flea who, I'm not worth your effort, but I'm also a partridge. You're not going to catch me. And it's just not worth the effort. Now, if you look at David's other writings, buried in his journal entries is an incredible look at the way in which he constantly noticed nature around him, took into his own soul what what God might be doing around him, whether it's up on top of the mountains, whether it's riding a bicycle and smelling the flowers. But look at all the ways embedded in just one of his journal entries that David took it in. Oh, man, have you ever seen the splinters on a cedar? No, I just saw a tree in a forest. Have you ever seen a calf? They kind of skip when they move. It's just a cow. I get milk from them. Have you ever noticed... Not just an ox, but a young wild ox. The way they can just sort of take in life. Have you ever just sat by a bonfire and allowed the flames to kind of restore you? Have you think and ponder and reflect on your life? Have you ever seen a deer give birth? There's something incredible about watching nature and love and, that, and, and, and how a mother cares for her young and, and to experience that. I mean, this is a guy who you do not want to go up against in battle, and yet this is a poet. This is a man who knows himself, and he knows how to notice. And part of developing that inner life, that soulishness of yourself, is to get back to learning how to notice and to get back into awe. I mean, here's how I vacation. What time do we need to be there? Okay, so we leave now, then we can get to Naples, Florida by, okay, we can't, 15 minutes for lunch, we can do uh, two gas breaks, maybe three gas breaks, okay, so we can get there by 5 o'clock, and then we'll be able to see the sunset. Oh, here we go, in the car, in the car, come on, in the car, in the car, in the car, come on, no no time to diddly death, close the door, here we go, all right, we got five minutes, five minutes, go, 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 toilet break for five minutes, all right, here's a bottle if you need it, okay, here we go, 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 and we're off again, all right, we got to eat, we got 15 minutes to eat, we're going through the drive, and now we're going to eat in the car, we got, we got we to be there by five. I've done this. We get there. It's five o'clock. We're in All right, grab yourself. We're going to catch the sunset still. Just set up the laundry. Just set up the lunch here. All right. Woo. It's the sunset. Woo. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. Check. All right, what do you want to do tonight? And missing the journey. Not noticing, not even being present in the journey. 
There's so many ways in which we miss it. King Xerxes, a historian Persian conqueror, amazing, amazing leader, conquered incredible aspects of the world. But he had also developed the idea to notice. He's marching two million Persians on their way to battle against the Greeks. And as he's marching, he's like, stop! Whoa, 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 whoa! Yeah, we got a battle. Yeah, it's going to advance the kingdom. Stop, guys. Have you ever seen a tree like this? He stops two million of his warriors to stop and admire a tree. Wow. It's beautiful. He sits and just sort of takes it in for a moment. What kind of kingdom am I building? I wonder if it will be as big and as long-standing as that tree. He's so impressed by this tree that he actually (laughs) has one made like it out of gold and placed... back home in Persia. So every time he comes and sits on the throne, he's got this beautiful tree to remind him, not just of conquering, but of beauty, of admiring, of noticing. There's a journalist who writes for Washington Post. His name is uh, Walt Harrington. And he built his career, rushing all over the place, getting the best stories. He advertised himself and markets himself as a master storyteller, and he has been. But he was go, 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 the top man for the job, Top man for the job. Careers, traveling here, there, all over the country. Traveling everywhere. He wrote a book called The Everlasting Stream. Where after years of rushing, rushing, rushing through his career, he decided to develop his inner lover. To begin to belong to himself. Here's what he says. If you had known me a long time, you wouldn't believe I'm in the woods right now. Happily listening to the tick-ticking blackbirds. Studying the green mosses around me. I still can't believe it myself. Every time I come into the old Collins wood, I see something for the first time. The edge saplings with a decade ago all look the same to me are actually a collection of ash and elm, dogwood and hickory. In fact, in a hard winter, if you look real closely, you'll see that some of the trunks have been girdled near the ground by rabbits, by rabbits eating the soft, nutritious bark. A wide field that the sun is revealing in shades of, of sand to ginger to bronze to henna and, and a good half mile away, gunmetal gray that demarcates the tree line along Skaggs Creek from a silver horizon that becomes a stunning Deft blue sky. Now I'm not saying all of us need to be poets. But he realized that he had turned himself into a machine that just produces. And you can do that for a long time and build a very successful career. But you're going to eventually come face to face with who am I? Am I just a machine that produces? I'm so good at output, I've never learned how to input my soul. What does it look like? And what's amazing about David is he not only could notice God's awe in creation, he could also see God's awe in people around him. Whoever they were, he could even see awe in his enemies. In fact, he says to to Saul, he says, Saul, here's your spear that was sitting by your head. It's in my hand now. I could have stabbed you through the temples last night, and I didn't. And you know why? 
because I see awe in you and I think you are precious and your life is valuable. And because your life is valuable, even though I got a right to defend myself, I didn't take your life because I see an awe of God's fingerprint in everyone around me. Poor, rich, prisoner, Belizean, city gospel, or living downtown, living in the suburb, people who like you, people who hate you. There's this awe of trying to see God's fingerprint on everyone around you. And he even says to Saul, he says, Saul, I saw your life being precious. Could you do the same for me? Could you see my life as precious? Could my life be valued? Could you value me the way I'm valuing you? Because I don't feel particularly valued right now. He was loving his enemies. That's why Jesus will come along years later and be known as the son of David and will teach us how he ultimately showed the love of God who saw the awe in human beings who rebelled against him and, and, and thumbed their nose at him, a, a traitor generation. And you know what he did? God chose to love his enemies. Even when they pounded nails into his hands and feet, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I read an amazing story about two weeks ago about Howard Stern and Kathy Lee Gifford. Now, if you don't know, Kathy Lee Gifford has been an outspoken Christian for many, many decades. And as a leader, as somebody who has uh, built an incredible career that has impacted you know, many, many people and really transcended uh, many of, of uh, broke through a lot of glass ceilings, Howard Stern was doing the same thing. But you couldn't have a different culture shift. Where Kathy Lee Gifford for years talked about her faith, even through the ups and downs of her marriage, talked about integrating her faith into her professional life and her family. She talked about her family. Howard Stern took decades, maybe it was three decades, at least two, mocking her, making fun of her, calling her a hypocrite. Everything about her faith and family was phony and ridiculous and and, and the worst thing you could possibly do and just ruthless and vicious toward her. She tells the story when Howard Stern decided to become a judge on America's Got Talent. She happened to be in the building that day. She'd never met Howard Stern, but never responded to him, but certainly had heard of all the things he had said about her over the last 20 years. She said she's sitting in the makeup chair. As she's getting her makeup on, she felt what she called a leading or a prompting from God. Somebody had told her Howard Stern was in the building. And she said, I felt like God was telling me that I should go and wish him well. I asked my makeup artist to wait for a moment. I got up, went down the hall, turned, turned, and I came to Howard Stern's dressing room and knocked on the door. Door opened and there was Howard Stern. I walked in the door. I said, hey, I'm Kathy Lee Gifford. I figured it's probably time for us to meet. A man known for his words was suddenly speechless. What's going to happen? Kathy Lee Gifford said, I heard you're the next judge on America's Got Got Talent. I just hope the best for you. I hope this is great. And I hope you do incredibly well. And I hope this just continues to to, um, move your career in great directions. I'm really rooting for you. That evening, she got a phone call from Howard Stern, who apologized. He said, 
I can't believe how you treated me after how I've treated you for the last 20 years. I always thought everything you had was fake because honestly you were living a kind of life that I couldn't live and wasn't even capable of living. And I want to apologize for how I prejudged you, how I judged you, and how I've treated you. Will you forgive me? That's somebody who saw the awe of God's awe in someone else that it would be hard for anyone to see after 20 years of being ruthlessly treated like that. And how God used that in the same way he uses David with Saul. But if you and I are going to build the kind of inner soulishness that gives us that kind of love, that kind of inner fortitude, that kind of strength as a woman, that kind of strength as a man, you and I are going to have to do some serious fighting for our soul in a culture that's so combative and so angry and so focused on what's next. It doesn't mean we don't lose our competitive edge. It means we bring alongside that this other side. And that's my encouragement as we... As we reflect on this stage is that you and I need to fight for love and awe. We got to fight to be givers, not just consumers. We got to fight for love and awe in our life. And at some point in your life, you're going to put something in the center of your life that's going to be your first love. And everything else around your life is going to be subject or subordinated to that. So if you put work in the center of your life, I promise you, if that's the main thing, your marriage will suffer. And your relationship with your kids will suffer. And you won't have time for, for, for hobbies and for other things because work is all there is. If it's your, it can be a love, but if it's your first love. But you put your marriage in the center, you'll destroy your marriage. Because you'll have such high expectations for your spouse, they will never be able to meet it. And they will suddenly be worn out because I'm the source of your meaning and hope, you know what? And you will put so much pressure on your marriage as your first love, the main thing, that eventually your spouse will give up because they're just not capable. You don't, you don't realize how deep your soul is. That you think a human being or, or, or a job or, or a client or, or a deal could ever satisfy your soul. You just haven't thought deep enough about your soul. Your soul is much bigger than a client. It's much bigger than a house. It's much bigger then one person can satisfy. God is the one thing that if you put him in the center of your life, he can sustain your expectations. And with him in the center of your life, you can love work without being owned by work. You can love your marriage without putting all those expectations on your marriage. You can, you can balance your life out because you're not living for work or living for your marriage or living for your hobbies or living for the battle. You're living for God, which allows all these other things to subordinate themselves in a way that all of them become healthier rather than becoming the source of your identity. But you have to fight to figure out what your first love is, what's in the center of your life. And you can look at the the cataclysmic results of other areas of your life and you can trace it back to figure out what your first love is. And then will you take the journey with me of battling back to find our soul by noticing? I don't know if you ever noticed snowflakes before. You ever wonder like how did we get as a culture to start noticing snowflakes well, there was a man with a vision. He was a vision. He was an engineer. He was building tel- uh, microscopes. And he was looking at snowflakes. And he was just amazed at this incredible, wonderful world all around us that no one had ever seen before. He said, I want to take photographs of snowflakes. He took the first ever s- photographs of snowflakes. And everybody like, what a waste of time. 
What a waste of energy. You're an engineer, you know how to operate a microscope, and, and, and you're doing this? He went to book publishers, nobody would publish it. That was just a ridiculous waste of time. Yet this man decided to self-publish the first ever photographs of snowflakes. I'll show you his name. Next slide. Wilson Bentley, otherwise known as the Snowflake Man. He said, I have noticed something that other people haven't seen, and I've got to share this all with the world. So he self-published this book that became a national seller at the time because people were mesmerized that there had been this world all around them that they had never noticed, that they had never seen, that each one could be so unique and so different and so beautiful. And what the snowflake man was trying to do was encourage the world to pause, to notice, and to learn how to reflect, and to learn how to connect with her own soul. These days, it is hard being plugged in all the time. We're going to have to fight to learn what it means to be a lover. Let's listen together. Well, maybe today's the day that you want to commit to saying, yeah, i gotta, I got to relearn how to live. Jesus had this great verse. He came and he said, you know what? People think I came for religion. I came that you might have life and life more abundant. Isn't it time to start living the abundant life? Maybe you want to pray with me. Maybe this is a chance for you to make a, a dedication, a declaration to yourself or to God. Wherever you are with God or the Bible to say, I want to start exploring this stuff. So maybe I say, God, I'm not living the life that connects me to who I am the way I think I probably should. And God, I'm not sure exactly how to incorporate you or faith into my heart. God, I definitely need help. I need some forgiveness. And God, I want to ask you to help me figure out who my first love is. Teach me how to belong. Make this next season of my life a time of noticing the awe all around me. And teach me who I am, who my soul is. That is, don't just live life. I know who I am as I'm living it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Well, thank you for continuing on our training manual journey. We've got two more weeks as we finish up on Father's Day. As we do that, I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, Doug Daly is going to be retiring uh, at the end of June. So many of you know him from men's ministry, from, from uh, parenting classes he's done and marriage classes he's done and, and teaching he's done, both at our equipping service and our exploring service. But on June 24th, we're going to have a special retirement party uh, out on the, the terrace for him from 3.30 to 5.30. So if you want to come and celebrate Doug with us, if you don't know who Doug is, you just want to come get a beer, you can do that as well. And then, oh, Doug, he's going to see it. Whatever it is, we would invite you. Everyone is welcome. We'd love to have you there on the terrace, 3.30 to 5.30, Sunday, June 24th. Thanks again. We'll see you all next week.